This episode contains adult language and topics that may be disturbing for some listeners. Such topics include suicide, drug use, physical or sexual abuse of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Crime. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. I'm your host, Grant, and here's your other host, Erica. Welcome, Erica. <laughs> What's going on here? We're on the prices wrong or what? It's because you say that my like welcome back is like a Casey Kasem thing, so I just went full on with it, like a whole game show opening. And I know how much you love game shows, so I figured you'd equally hate it and love it. Yeah, I do love game shows. I won't lie about that. Did you like that opening? Yeah, I didn't hate it, to be honest with you. Wow. I got to be honest. I thought you were going to hate it. I, I actually, when I thought about it, I kind of giggled because I was like, oh, she's going to hate this. <laughs> yeah, no, I kind of liked it. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I guess I learned something new about you. Yeah. So I'm excited to get into tonight's case because it's a serial killer and that's your favorite. It is my favorite. And I had never heard of this case before. So like when we talked about this, I was like, yeah, we be voice killer. That sounds sweet. And yeah, it's not so sweet, huh? <laughs> it's not so sweet. Like, but yeah, even his voice isn't like it's weepy, but everything about him is pretty irritating. So let's just jump into it. So this episode starts in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. For anybody who doesn't know, that's Minneapolis and St. Paul. And we're going to go all the way back to June of 1981. So the number one song was Elvira by the Oak Ridge Boys. Oh, that's a good one. You want yeah. to give us a couple bars? No. Oh, okay. I was pretty excited that we were going back to the 80s because I was like, ugh, the last few weeks we've done like 2013, 2014 cases and we refused to talk about the number one song because it was Florida <laughs> Georgia Line. Yeah, we don't recognize them as true music, so. Right. And we both like the Oak Ridge Boys too, so. Totally. All right, so around 7 p.m. on June 3rd, 1981, a call came in to St. Paul 911 from a person with a really high-pitched, squeaky voice. Almost sounds like he's crying, or at least almost crying, or faking that he's crying. I mean, how would you explain it? I don't. It's hard because I keep going back and forth with it. When I first heard it, I was like, no, this guy's definitely crying. And then as I listened to it several more times, I was like, I I don't think he's really crying. So Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to tell. But when you hear his real voice, I think he was actually crying. I do. Yeah, well, we'll just play the audio and let you guys decide. You find me, I just stab somebody with an stick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody you guys can decide for yourself if he's really crying or whatever, but he doesn't really say much in that audio clip. Like, he doesn't say where he killed anybody or who he is or who the person he killed is. Nothing. He's telling what he did. He's telling what the weapon was, but he's not giving any more, like, identifying information. He's just kind of saying it to get it off of his chest. Right. And that's a pretty Minnesota-specific murder weapon, huh? <laughs> like, who it- keeps an ice pick in their car in June? Well, I mean, I imagine if you're in Minnesota, you probably just kind of keep it in your car year round. You know, you just kind of always just make sure you have it. That's where you keep it, you know, 
Yeah, and I guess if you're using it to stab people too, you got to make sure you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're gonna have stabbing people with it, it's gonna be your murder weapon. You're probably yeah. carrying it around with you too. Yeah. So, but like we said, he didn't say who or where or anything about where this attack took place. So they traced the call to a payphone at a bar in downtown St. Paul. And the investigators headed to the bar right away. And they talked to the bartender and everyone there. And they established pretty quickly, like, whoever made the call was not still there, like, of the people that were there. But they asked everybody, like, did you see somebody on the phone, you know? And the bartender and all the people in the bar were like, sorry, we didn't see anybody. Like, I don't remember seeing anybody using the phone. But they took prints anyways, which turned out to not be helpful at all because it's a payphone in a bar. Yeah. And I was going to say, like, in 1982, like, everybody was kind of using yeah. payphones, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, it pr- probably wasn't, like, weird to be like, oh, my gosh, there they are. And if there was a payphone that was used often, it would be the one in the back of a bar to call for a cab or to call for a ride or... Totally. Yeah. That makes a ton more sense. Absolutely. Yeah. So while all this is going on, and they're asking all the people in the bar questions and all that stuff, three teenage boys that are walking around under like a an unfinished freeway overpass thing down by the river call the police because they were walking and they found the body of a young woman. Man, what a thing to come up on. You know, just I know this, these aren't the only people who've ever done it, but I just I can't imagine just out walking and strolling down the, the riverbank with your buddies and then boom, there's the bloody body of a dead woman. Like, that's that's scarring. Totally. And when the police arrived, they found nothing at the scene besides the woman's body. Like, no purse, identification, nothing like that. But in her pocket was a key to a locker. And they tracked the locker down to a bus station in St. Paul. And when they checked inside, they found a couple of, like, overnight bags. There wasn't anything about, like, who might have killed her. But they were able to identify the young woman that they found. And she ended up being 18-year-old Kimberly Compton. Thank goodness that she had that key in her pocket and she stored those bags away. So, like... They could yeah. identify who she was, you know, if she would have just left them somewhere. I mean, I mean, they probably would have figured it out eventually, but this just made it so much easier. And this poor girl, like she was from a small town in Wisconsin and she had just yeah. come to this new city to start her new life. She had just graduated high school and yeah, two weeks before. That's crazy. Yeah. What are the odds yeah. that she ends up meeting this guy right off the bus? Like you said, she, Kimberly had just turned 18. She graduated high school two weeks before. She was from a town called Pepin, Wisconsin. It's a small town of less than like a thousand people, but it was only about an hour and a half from St. Paul. So St. Paul was the big city. And she was eager to move there, go to college, start her life. And a few hours before her body was found, her friend had dropped her off at the bus station and she headed to St. Paul. That's where her trail ended until her body was discovered later that afternoon. That's so heartbreaking. You know, just young, vivacious. Day one. Yep. Going out there to start a new life and make something of herself from her small town and just ran into this guy. Yep. So the police started investigating her murder, obviously. And the problem is you usually start with the people closest to the victim. But Kimberly didn't know anybody. She literally just pulled into town. So the authorities released the 911 call that night to see if anybody would call in a tip about who this guy could be. There were a lot of tips, but none of them always are. And they never do. (laughs) Yeah. None of them panned out. So they conducted the autopsy the very next day, and it revealed that Kimberly was stabbed 61 times with an ice pick. 
That's insane. Like that's just like that's more like pent up aggression kind of stuff. That's not like oh I yeah. you know mistake or you know kill yeah. you till you're dead. Like that's like pissed off. Right. Every vital organ in her body was punctured. Oh, it was man. vicious and brutal and probably took quite a long time. The autopsy also revealed the contents of her stomach, which happened to be beef and fries. So they retrace her steps from the bus station and right down the street from the bus station, like one of the first restaurants you come up on is called Mickey's Diner. And the special that night was barbecue beef and fries. Wow. They kind of hit the jackpot on that. They were like, obviously, this is where she ate dinner. And I heard that those stomach contents, too, were so well-preserved because it was so fresh that like, you could even mm. see, like, the teeth mark in some of the some of the items. Like, how yeah. incredibly sad, you know? Like, yeah. She was killed right after she ate. Yeah. You know, can't you imagine, like, she's on this bus, she's in this new town. Okay, drop my bags off. I'm going to go get something to eat, and that's it. Yeah, so they interviewed the staff and the regulars at Mickey's, and some of the people remembered her being there, but that was it. Nobody remembered anything else. Like, there was no altercation or anything that happened in the restaurant. Wow. So her body was found about two miles away, so they assume that whoever killed her took her to where she was found. She probably didn't walk two miles. But the bar that the 911 call came in from was across the street from Mickey's diner. So the police theorized that the killer took her from the diner, killed her, and then went back to the same area to make the call from the payphone at the bar. Is that probably because he took her to like a rural spot, like where these boys kind of were? Yeah. But it's like, why go back to the bar to make the call? That seems kind of weird. Yeah. It certainly does. Well, don't you think after stabbing somebody 61 times with an ice pick, you might have, like, I don't know, blood on you? Oh, well, yeah, but, uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, Just kind of weird that nobody at the bar saw a bloody guy walk in, cry a bunch into a payphone, and then walk (laughs) out. Like, that seems weird. Yeah, when you put it that way, it, it definitely does. Any chance that it was Halloween? Because that would be incredible. June 3rd. <laughs> I know, that was a Creed quote. It's Halloween. Oh, yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah. yeah. is incredible, incredible timing. Yeah. Yeah. The only other thing I can think of is I wonder, you know how some bars, they have like a front door and then like a back door where there's like a parking lot behind them. And then maybe the payphone was like in that hallway, like where the bathrooms are. Maybe the person came in the back door used the phone, and then went out the back door. Like, maybe he knew that bar well enough ah. to know that he could go in the back door, use the phone, and then leave again. Yeah, I, I I, see where you're going, but again, don't you think he'd be dripping blood or have blood on his know. hands? Like, not... I would think so. Unless, did he have a change of clothes, you know? Who knows? Yeah, who knows? I do have to say, though, that the St. Paul police did a really thorough job, it seems like, with this investigation. Like, everything was handled super quick. The autopsy was done the next day. They released the audio from the 911 call that night. They found the locker key right away. Like, they seemed like they did everything as quickly as they could. And efficiently. Good job, guys. It seems like that, right, compared to other cases we've seen from the 80s? Like <laughs> it, it totally does, but it also makes sense, too, because this is a big city. You know, you would expect a big city police department to True. do a better yeah. job on these kinds of things. So, yeah, it does. it is a better job, but also <laughs> it's a higher standard, too. True, yeah. 
So hundreds of calls are coming in from this tip line and they're tracking every single one down, but nothing is coming together. Like there's no, there's no like, oh, we got him. All the tips are like, oh, it sounds like my cousin, you know, and then they look, <laughs> look it up and the cousin's been dead for five years. It's like, well, probably not your cousin then. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so then eight days after the first call, another call comes in. Don't talk to listen. I'm sorry what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. Don't know why I had to stab her. I'm so upset about it. I keep getting drunk every day. I can't believe I did a big dream. I can't think of being locked up. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. I'd rather kill myself than get locked up. I'll be trying not to kill anybody else. What do you think about that one? Obviously, first and foremost, he's admitting to killing Kimberly Compton, so he's incriminated himself there. Yeah. But sounds like a drunken ramble, and he mentions that he is drunk. So I think that all jives and makes sense. Yeah. Um, You know, because he, I think, was just drunk and had to tell somebody, so he called 911. But he's saying he's sorry and that he he regrets what he did. Like, do you believe that? I mean, it's hard. I tend to kind of think yes. I kind of think that what he was doing was so impulsive that after it's done, he kind of breaks out of that and is able to kind of then process it and obviously not process it well. And that's why he's getting drunk. And yeah, um, I think there I I do kind of feel like there is remorse after the fact, but, you know, which would be interesting because most serial killers don't give exactly like totally they don't care usually. They can pretend like they're remorseful and like they care, but they don't usually. And that's usually only once they get caught and they're talking to a jury. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, but there's something about why he's calling in, you know, even after these things are done. And it doesn't sound like he's doing it to brag. You know, if you're doing it to brag, I think you're kind of, you got your chest kind of puffed out. Like, yeah, but yeah, I, you don't get that with this guy. And so maybe he's going 180, but I, I do think that it's probably like a blackout thing. You know, he knows what he's doing, but like can't stop himself. Yeah, maybe. So the police trace this call to another payphone. But by the time they get there, the killer is gone and left no prints or anything at the payphone. They're just like, oh, that sucks. So the investigation just kind of stalls out. They don't really know where to go with it. Just silence for quite a while. It'd be like 14 months before they hear from him again. So, of course, they do the normal, like, assume he's dead or in jail and but they don't stop looking for him. Well, and they know that too. And one of the most important things that I think that they did was audit those emergency calls from before Kimberly's murder, because some of the wording of those calls just makes it seem like this probably isn't his first murder. Right. Which is good that they did, like you said, because they end up finding another call from six months before Kimberly Compton was murdered. So New Year's Day, 1981, at like 3 a.m., this call came in. Yes, please, this is an emergency. Please send a squad to test on the road. Malmberg Manufacturing Company, machine shop. Please, there's an ambulance, too. There's a girl hurt there. Can you tell me what happened to her? There's hurry. There's a, she's laying on the ground in the back by the, by the railroad tracks, by the engine. Hurry. What's the address? I don't know. Who are you? Obviously, when they hear this recording, even though it was from six months before, they're like, that's our guy. Like, that's the same guy that's been calling in about Compton. Certainly sounds like it. So they really start looking into it and find out if they responded to this call at the machine shop and all that stuff. And it turns out they did. 
And when they got to the machine shop and went around back, they found a woman named Karen Potak naked in a snowbank. And she was beaten mercilessly. Like so bad her skull was literally cracked open. And she was found naked, but there was no sign of sexual assault. But the really like amazing part was Karen was still alive. She survived the brutal attack, but when she was able to answer questions, she didn't remember anything. So she wasn't very helpful in their investigation, unfortunately. Yeah. And she was only 20 years old. That's really... Yeah. Yeah. Again, just super, super young, you know, like we saw before. Yeah. So what they were able to piece together from her attack was that her and her sister were celebrating New Year's Eve on University Ave, where there's like a lot of bars and restaurants and stuff where young people hang out. And at some point, her and her sister got separated, like they got into like some little tiff. And somehow Karen ended up outside, you know, like separated from her sister and ended up with this monster, obviously, at some point. I don't want to go as far as to call him a monster. And I, I know why you would. I get it. But I really feel like these are impulses. And though I think he can be responsible for his own actions, I also think that it might not be something he has full control over. I, I know yeah. I'm not, no, most people aren't going to agree with me. I'm not even sure that I fully agree with me. It's just, <laughs> I'm not, but I do think that it, these things happen. And after listening to that last clip, he's calling in, And again, it doesn't sound like he's bragging. And I, he sounds like he's calling for help for her, even though he's the one who did it. So, right. you know, I, I don't know. I go back and forth and, Yeah. Well, the fact that she was at this bar and this phone call were really all they had to go on in her case because she didn't remember anything. So until they connected this to the calls about Kimberly Compton, they had no leads. But there wasn't much revealing about this call either, except the machine shop that he mentioned in the 911 call. There was not big billboards and signs that said Marble Manufacturing Machine Shop. Like, unless you knew what that building was, you wouldn't know what it was. So either he's a local or he is more involved there. Right. Anyway, just something they kind of noted and then moved on. And this is right around the time that the media dubbed him the Weepy Voice Killer, too, because they were releasing all these 911 calls when they would come in. He got dubbed another moniker, too, and it was like the Whisper Killer or... Yeah, something like that. And the Weepy Voice Killer is like a little, I don't know, like a little jab or a little insulting. But, I mean, I guess they could have been much more brutal with that moniker than that, I think. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I definitely agree (laughs) with you, too. But yeah. Yeah, Weepy Voice Killer, like, it is a little, like, not big and bad, but again, I don't think he's trying to be that, so. Yeah. So, all's quiet for the rest of 1981. They don't hear from him. There's no more attacks. Like, it's just, they're just trying to find this guy. They're trying to track down all these thousands of leads of people calling in about their brother-in-law or their cousin or. They all come from a good place, but they all go into the trash can at the end of the day. Yeah, Usually. Usually. Yeah. So... On August 6th of 1982, early in the morning, like 6, 6.30 in the morning, a newspaper carrier in Minneapolis called the police to let them know that he had just found a body on the bank of the Mississippi River, which I don't know why you're delivering newspapers on the river, but this is... (laughs) Things get lost over 35 years of this story being told and told and told, you know? They're probably old ones from the day before, so he was just dumping them in the river. Back back then, it was cool to just dump things into the river, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, well, these are done, but luckily those probably did break down, so. Yeah. So, when the police arrived to the scene, 
It is gruesome. There's drag marks and blood all in the dirt, all the way up to this, like, little short embankment that he pushed her over, like, towards the water, but she didn't go in the water. Right. Anyway, they identify this woman as 40-year-old Barbara Simons, and she was stabbed 106 times. Oh, my gosh. Just like Kimberly Compton, but a lot Almost twice as many. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's escalation for sure. Every single vital organ in her body was hit, like her arteries, veins, lungs. Also like Kimberly Compton. So we're seeing two similar kill styles. Oh, yeah. And they determined that she wasn't stabbed with a knife. It was either an ice pick or a screwdriver or some such similar item. Also like Kimberly, so. Yep. And just like Kimberly, she was not sexually assaulted. Yeah, I didn't even think to ask about that, but you're right. That makes me think even more that these were just impulses. Like there are things that he probably just thought about a lot. And when he could, he acted upon it. Yeah. So they look into Barbara's personal life. She was divorced, but it had been years and years and years that she was single. So it was like probably not her ex-husband because it was years before. Right. And she had no boyfriend that anybody knew about. But she was known to frequent a bar called the Hexagon Bar. How many sizes does the Hexagon have? Five? Hex. Hex. (laughs) I don't know. I think it's five. Hex sides? I think it's five. I don't know. I'll look it up. Anyway, and her family and friends say that she was there at the Hexagon Bar the night before she was found murdered. Hexagon has six sides. Oh, okay. There we go. Yeah. So maybe it was a rounder bar or a hexagony bar. (laughs) Maybe. Hexagonian? Would it be hexagonian? No. (laughs) Okay. I don't think so. (laughs) Like Slogonian, hexagonian. Yeah, I get it. (laughs) Continue. Continue. So the investigators interview the staff at the bar, and one cocktail waitress said that she remembered Barbara dancing and hanging out with a man that night. And the waitress described him as normal. He was like 180 pounds, maybe six foot, dark hair, dark eyes, nothing special. He was kind of shy. Um, He had a mustache, which this is 82, so uh, probably everybody. Everyone did. Everybody did. Did he have yeah. aviator glasses on too? Tell me he had aviator glasses right? on Right, and a too. members only jacket. Like, <laughs> yeah. Was he bumping Prince? I mean, this is Minneapolis in 82. I'm sure he was just like every other guy. Really good reference. Way to bring Prince into the Minneapolis episode. I like that a lot. Barbara even told this waitress, I hope this guy's a nice guy because he's going to drive me home. Making a joke about like, oh, I'm going home with a guy from the bar. Like, Yeah. And then her body was found the next morning. So obviously not a super nice guy. Is this where we like decide don't go home with people from the bars? Was it, was it this case? Was it that big? Or just it's happened a lot? No, I think it just happened a lot. I think oh, okay. there was just like, yeah. <laughs> okay. I think it was a culmination of the millions of times girls went home with boys from the bar and then shit didn't work out. Yeah. Don't go home with anybody from the bar. It sounds like a good time, but you're going to end up dead. So don't do it. Or with gonorrhea. Which probably could kill you too. Well, I don't know if gonorrhea can kill you or not, but. I don't know. I, don't, I hope to not find Pretend out. Pretend like it can and don't get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we're not we're not talking about gonorrhea, okay? Let's let's oh, move Lord. on. <laughs> I know. I don't know how we got there. <laughs> oh, I could tell you. But... Yeah. So <laughs> stop. Just let's move on. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> so two days after Barbara's body was found, the weepy voice killer called again. Well, I mean, I think it's a good thing that he's calling, isn't it? Like, I mean, it's a bad thing that yeah. he's doing, but it's a good thing that he's letting somebody know. He's letting know. the adults know. I know. It just 
is irritating me because no, I, I, that I understand absolutely. Yep. So here is the audio from that call. Fire emergency. Please don't talk this lesson. I'm sorry, I killed that girl. I stabbed her forty times. Kimberly Compton was the first one on my Facebook. Oh my! I don't know what you're mad at me. I'm sick. I'm gonna kill myself. I'm sick. So again, this sounds like a drunken ramble to me. I mean, I think that this is really weighing on this guy. I really do. And I, again, I know I tend to give these guys more, like the benefit of the doubt, more than they probably deserve. Yeah, but, way more. Yeah, I know. But I do. I think that what he did, he knows was wrong and he's admitting it. He's trying to get it off of his chest. It's probably, he can't tell anybody else. Yeah. This one, he seems way more frantic. Like it's much harder to understand. I really, I mean, he probably is contemplating suicide, you know? I mean, he's done, he keeps doing this, and I don't think he likes the outcome afterwards. I think during it, he doesn't care. I think it's after that he is very remorseful. Yeah. So he also mentions if somebody dies with a red shirt on, which got everyone freaked out because now that they think about it. Minneapolis and Target are from the same place, and they wear the red shirts. That makes so much sense. (laughs) Stupid. No? Okay. Sorry, I thought I had something there. No, but that was good try. But this did get everybody thinking, though, because now that they think about it, Kimberly Compton had a red shirt on and Barbara Simons was wearing red. So who knows if this is like part of his thing or if it's just a coincidence, but even he mentions it himself in the call. Yeah, it definitely makes it sound like it might be his thing rather than just a coincidence. Right. So like. All the women in the Twin Cities are like, well, fuck those red shirts for a while. <laughs> like, yep. Done with that half of my closet. Half. That's a lot of red shirts. Yeah, but... no. Nobody has that much red. I mean, some people might, if you like red, I guess. Yeah. Probably. You have a lot of red shirts, actually. Um, I have like two. I have a lot of red jerseys, yeah. That's what I was going to say. All your angel shirts are red, but yeah, I guess they are jerseys. Yeah. Only like three of them are red. The other ones are white. One's gray. Yeah, but they have red on them. Would you risk it if there was a serial killer targeting people with red on? I wouldn't be wearing any. (sighs) Man. You know what? This guy, I'm probably willing to. I am. Well, you would Richard Ramirez or, you know, Ed Kemper. I'm probably not, but but this guy, I I think I could take him. Yeah. So they continue to follow up on thousands of tips from their tip line, but they're still hitting dead ends. So they put together a photo lineup. I forget what they call that, where they put like six or eight photos of guys that match like the description that the waitress gave them. I think they call that a photo lineup. Yeah, but no, there's like a like a slang term for it. And I thought it was cool and I thought I knew it, but I can't remember what it's called. But they use all photos of felons in the area that have been arrested before for like attacks on women, but that matched her description. And they go back to the bar and one of the staff members from the Hexagon Bar pointed out a picture of a man named Paul Michael Stefani as the guy that Barbara Simons was seen dancing with and leaving with the night she was murdered. Well, well, well. (laughs) Yeah. So Paul had been arrested before for an assault on a woman. (laughs) Well, he fits the bill. Yeah, and he'd been ordered to see a psychologist for mental health issues, like by the judge and the courts. And he was divorced with a daughter, but he was like a total deadbeat. Like he didn't take care of his kids or have any contact with his ex or his daughter or anything. 
he was a janitor at a detox facility. And since the weepy voice killer was like on the loose and everybody was scared of this guy, Paul would walk all the nurses to their car at night to make sure they got to their car safely. It's like, guys, he's the killer. But they don't know that yet. Right. So the cops start tailing him just in case he's their guy, you know, because they don't really know yet. But this guy picked him out of a lineup and they don't have enough evidence or probable cause or anything to even get a search warrant, let alone arrest him. But they want to try to prevent more attacks if he is their guy. So they're just kind of keeping an eye on him, tailing him, surveilling him at his apartment, stuff like that, while they gather more evidence. And while they're doing this... They run background checks on him and all that kind of stuff, and they discover that he used to work at Malberg Manufacturing Machine Shop. Oh, so that's how he knew where it was. Yeah, and what it was. Right. That's what I meant. That's how he knew what it was. Yeah. So that's an interesting... They're like, oh no, these dots are lining up super good. Yeah. I think once you start seeing these all kind of put together, it's you're pretty certain who your guy is. Yeah. Then on the night of August 21st, 1982, so less than, what, like two weeks since Denise Simons was murdered, he shakes the surveillance. And they don't even know if he knew he was being surveilled. He just, like, took a turn and they kind of missed it or something. Something kind of really lame and they lost him. But they don't even know if he was trying to lose them. Like, they don't think he even knew he was being surveilled. (laughs) Gave him the slip on accident. Yeah. Literally by accident. That's crazy. So that night, Paul ends up picking up a sex worker named Denise Williams. She's only 19, but she is street smart as shit. This lady's a badass. So him and Denise go and they have their date. And she said it was super quick. Like so quick that she was like, oh man, this guy's going to want to go again. (laughs) But he didn't. I didn't know that was an option. No, I don't know. The way she kind of made it sound was like it was so fast that she would have like almost felt bad for him and like let him go again. Like, and I don't know if she was like saying that just to like be a dick or if that's really how it went down. But that's like the interview that I saw. I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. That is pretty funny. Yeah. Anyway, he said no, like he was good and he was going to take her back to where he picked her up from. And that was the end of it. But he didn't. He ended up in like this empty parking lot. And it was kind of dark and there was no cars around because it was nighttime. And he attacked her out of nowhere and he just started stabbing her with a screwdriver. While this is happening, she's frantically like trying to get away from him. And she sees a glass pop bottle, if you're from Minnesota, or a soda bottle if you're from the rest of the fucking world. (laughs) And she beat him over the head with it until it broke and like cut his face all up. Oh, my God. Yeah. And it startled him enough that she was able to, like, get out of the car and try to get away. And she was screaming. And she wasn't just screaming. She was screaming, he's killing me. He caught her in the parking lot and was, like, on top of her and stabbing her. And a guy named Douglas, who lived, like, right next door to this parking lot, heard the screaming. And at first he thought it was like a bunch of college kids just like partying. But then when he heard her yell, he's killing me, he takes off towards the screams, which I'm like, hero, Douglas. Yeah, absolutely. What a terrifying thing to, I mean, you hear he's killing me and you go and sprint over there like, that's pretty brave. Yeah, totally. 
And when he got to them, he was, like, over her. Paul was over her outside of the car and, like, stabbing her. Jeez. He ripped Paul off of Denise. And then Paul came at him with a screwdriver, which was, in the interview that I saw with him, he was like, that was the first time I realized he had a screwdriver. Like, he thought he was beating her. Have you seen the interview with Denise? I've seen a interview with her. I don't know if the same one. She's so cool. And she's so proud of herself for, like, cutting him up like she did. Yeah, fuck yeah. She should be. I agree. And I just, I love that she's like, "Mm mm-hmm, I did it. Yeah. So he comes at him with a screwdriver. So Douglas runs back to his house to get his gun. And when he ran back, Paul got scared and took off in his car. What a interesting, like, turn of events there. Like, I yeah. mean, he must live very close. Yeah, he lived right next door to this parking lot. Well, I know that. But, I mean, still, you can live next door to a parking lot and have it be on the other side or something. Yeah. But, like, yeah. to run back and him not have enough time to gather things up or at least get himself out of there. Like, yeah. So Douglas calls 911 and Denise was rushed to the hospital and she survives, like we said, because she's badass. Meanwhile, the police are still kind of searching for Stefani around. When they get this call, they're like, this has got to be him, you know, all this stuff. So they're searching for him all around St. Paul, Minneapolis. And around 2 a.m., he calls 911 from his own apartment, which is probably like the first place I would have looked if you had lost him. Yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah. I was like, I probably would have sent a guy back to the apartment, but that's okay. Anyway, this guy called 911 because he had a couple cuts on his face from where Denise beat the shit out of him. And he was like so devastated about it, he called 911. <laughs> where? 1505 Westminster. 1505? Yeah. Westminster, what's the problem? I'm all cut up. I got beat up. What's your apartment number? 208, I believe. Thank God he did, though, because these injuries and this attack on Denise gave police a reason to pretend to be investigating his assault and to interview him, like without a warrant or without any, you know, they were able to talk to him because they were like, we got to catch who did this to you, Paul. What happened? And so they got him bitching and complaining about the crazy lady who attacked him. And then they just set the case file in front of him and opened it up with all the crime scene photos and he immediately started doing the weepy cry voice. (laughs) You're not going to pin this on me. And they were like, you're not going to pin this on me. Yeah. And they're like, he sounds like the, like the gingerbread man from Shrek crying. That's what he sounds like. Yeah. I've never seen Shrek, but I'll agree with that. Is that the one with the green guy? Yeah. That's the one with the green guy. Okay. So three days after Denise's attack, Paul is like formally charged with her stabbing. And then they announce in a press conference that they're charging him with Barbara Simon's murder, too. Well, good. I mean, I'm glad they have enough evidence to be able to do that. Yep. So by 1985, he goes to trial and it's pretty obvious that he's like the weepy voice killer. So it's obvious that he's responsible for Karen and Kimberly's, too. But at this trial, though, he's being charged with Barbara's murder and Denise's attack only. And that's because the witnesses ID'd him from the bar as the guy that Denise left with, or the guy that Barbara left with, I'm sorry. And then, obviously, Denise ID'd him as her attacker. Yeah, luckily so. she survived. and Yeah. And lucky, luckily she was able to do this, and, you know, because we've heard other cases where... Yeah, they can't testify. So besides the calls like the weepy voice killer calls that connects all four of these attacks together, there's not really any evidence for Karen and Kimberly. Does that make sense? Yeah. But the prosecution plays the calls in court anyway. 
And his own sister even testified that it was him on the recorded calls. And it was obvious to everybody that he was the weepy voice killer. But it was really hard for his sister to like say that too. And I th- I kind of feel like she was doing it to help him. I think she knew it was him and she kind of went there to confirm it was and really probably kind of help him. I think at this point she probably did know. Yeah. And this was him being able to stop. I think he did want to stop and now he's finally able to stop because everything I saw, his sister was really torn up about having to admit yeah, that I'm it was sure. him. Of course. But she did admit that it was, she was sure, certain it was him. But the St. Paul police decided not to take it to trial for Kimberly and Karen because they thought it would waste millions of dollars to fight something that they knew was him. They Partly because he was convicted of Denise's attack and Barbara's murder. So he was already given a 40-year sentence. So the St. Paul police decided not to charge him with Kimberly and Karen. I... I get it. Yeah. I get it, but I also understand her family wanting their justice, too. 100%. I'd be pissed. Yeah. And they have every right to be pissed. And he wouldn't admit that he killed them. Like, he didn't admit to any of them. I wonder if there's a benefit, though, because, like, then they don't have to sit through the trial. They don't have to go through that weeks or months of testimony and, you know, all of that drawn out. Yes, of course. If he would have pled guilty and admitted that he did it, he wouldn't admit that he did it. He was saying he didn't do it. So not only did they not get justice, he wouldn't admit that he even did it. That part would bother me. Yeah. That part would be the part that would really be like... You son of a bitch, you know that you did this. (laughs) Exactly. But they would get some relief because 12 years later, in 1997, Paul Stefani gets diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he decides that he has to confess his sins before he dies because he was raised a strict Catholic. And so he feels like he has to confess to be forgiven to get to heaven. It makes a lot of sense then why he's calling 911 after these things and he's, uh-huh. you know, saying like, hey, I did this. This is what happened. And he's, you know, so torn up about it. Almost like a confessional booth, you know? Yeah. He's got that Catholic guilt. Exactly. I When I heard that he was raised like a strict Catholic, I'm like, this whole thing makes sense now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's right in line. Yeah. 100% right in line. Like, none of it made any sense before. Like, killers don't have remorse. Like, serial killers don't have remorse. Like, this is weird, you know? But then I'm like, yeah. oh, he's battling, like, a, a deep-seated, like, religious upbringing about, I have to confess that, you know? A, a literal battle against good and evil, like, on his shoulder. Yeah. In his own brain. Yeah. So he admitted to the attack on Karen and gave details about how she had gotten in a fight with her sister on New Year's Eve and decided to go home instead of staying at the bar. And so she was outside the bar alone. And he didn't really say if she was like walking home or if maybe she was waiting for a cab, but it was freezing. I mean, it's New Year's Eve in Minneapolis. I'm sure it's butt cold there. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely it is. Yeah, so he offered her his coat and a ride home in like a nice warm car and she accepted. And that's how he got her to go home with him, like to go behind the machine shop where he made her undress and then beat her with a tire iron. Good lord. Like, why, why, why do you have to do this, man? Like, just let her go home. I struggle with this so much, because it's like, just, just be a nice guy. Just let her go home. Yeah, just take her home. Yeah. There have been several times that, like, I've seen girls walk in, it's like, should I offer them a ride? It's like, no, because shit like this happens, and they're gonna think I'm gonna kill them. So. Yeah, exactly. So I don't. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully they wouldn't take it anyway. I know, but you know what I mean. I know what you mean. 
So after he admits to the attack on Karen, he then admitted to Kimberly Compton's murder. And he said that he had met her at Mickey's Diner right after she got off the bus. And as a local, offered to show her around the city for a while. Like, oh, I'll take you around for a couple hours and show you the city. (laughs) He said he took her to a scenic view of the river, and that's where he stabbed her 61 times with an ice pick. God, this was just so easy for him. Yeah, what are the fucking chances here? This poor girl gets on a bus from her small town where she knows everybody who lives there and heads to the big city and the first fucking person she meets is a serial killer. I I mean, that has to be like one in a fucking million. Probably, oh, yeah. I was going to say more than that, but it's probably not more than that. Yeah, I mean, you expect this in like New York or LA or Chicago, but like St. Paul, Minnesota, like Minnesota people are so nice. They're like almost Canadian. They're so nice. Oh, they're not going to like that you said that. No, you betcha they won't, but that's fine. Oh, you betcha. (laughs) But it's like they're so nice. Like, who would think this in Minnesota? Like, I wouldn't, and I especially bet you that Kimberly Compton didn't. She was like, what a nice guy this Paul is. He's going to show me around. And like 999,000 guys that she could have met that day probably would have just showed her around. Yeah, probably. And probably from her small town in Wisconsin, that was probably not an abnormal thing to have happen. Yeah, that sucks. man. I just, to me, it's like, what are the chances? But at least the victims... And the families of the victims have some sort of ending to this ongoing nightmare about him not being charged with their murders and not like at least he admitted to it, even though they didn't really get justice. At least he admitted he did it. Right. Exactly. At least if there was no good that came out of this, but yeah, at least he did that. Right. The bare minimum. Yeah. But before Paul died of skin cancer, he had one more confession. Paul confessed to the murder of Kathleen Greening, and this murder took place in July of 82, so it was in that 14-month silent stretch between Kimberly and Barbara, you know, where they were like, oh, he's probably dead or in jail, you know, like the shit they always say, which is almost never true. Right. So 33-year-old Kathleen was found drowned in her bathtub in her own home, and it was initially ruled an accidental death. Like, they thought she drowned in her bathtub, which I don't know that that's a thing that really actually happens, but the fact that... Not by accident. Yeah, but that's how it was ruled. And the fact that he never made any, like, whimpering, whiny phone calls about her murder made it to where the police would have never connected that. Well, and I wonder why he never did for this one, and I... I wonder if it wasn't because it wasn't the way he liked to kill. It wasn't a stabbing. It was a a drowning. And I don't know. Maybe he didn't take ownership of it. I have no idea. That's so bizarre. I think there's another reason. Oh, okay. You're probably more right than I am. Because the first victim, he he beat her with a tire iron. Then this one, he drowned. And then he started stabbing. Or tire iron, stabbing, drowned. Like, I think he was just trying to figure out what he liked. I think that's the reason for the difference in how he killed them. But I think the reason he didn't make any phone calls on this one is after he confessed that he had held her head underwater by her shoulders in her bathtub, the police went back to look at anything that they had left from her case and like the crime scene. And they found her address book was still in evidence at the police station and Paul Stefani's name was in it. So he knew her. Right. So he thought they would figure out that they were connected. Maybe. Like, that's, to me, that seems like, because they don't know how he knew her, but they knew each other, obviously, because his name was in her phone book. 
So maybe he didn't make the call because maybe he had plans with her or something that day and he was afraid that she had told somebody that. Hmm. And then he would be a suspect. You know what I mean? Interesting. Yeah. So he wasn't ever convicted of this crime, but it's pretty likely that she was his third victim. And that's it. This piece of shit died in prison of cancer in June of 1998. And that's the end of it. And it was a slow, painful death at that. So Yeah, because he knew for a long time that he had cancer. And skin cancer, I know, can be not that painful. But also if you are in prison and you're probably not getting the best treatments and yeah, you die of it, I'm pretty sure it's probably pretty painful. I would think any kind of cancer that's overtaking your body is just absolutely awful. This one's a very interesting case to me. It really is because it does play against that moral dilemma. Did he actually feel remorse for what he did? Or was he doing it to boast and show off about what he did and kind of get the the notoriety? My theory on that, I don't think that he was doing it to boast or even to taunt the police. I really think it was more he knew that in his religion he had to confess to the things he did wrong to get into like it was like a battle. Like he was doing these things but then he's like, "Oh, it's fine. I confess to him so I can keep doing them." That's Not really how it works, but I don't really think he actually felt bad. Like, I think he knew he was supposed to feel bad. Could be. He was, like, pretending like he felt bad. Does that make sense? Kind of. Almost like he had learned that he was supposed to feel bad, but maybe he didn't actually. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, like, because of his deep religious upbringing. Like, he had this, like, battle. Like, I should be really not doing this. And, like, that's what made it hard for him is he knew better. Yeah. But he was still doing it. I think I'm kind of on the same page. I think he did know better. Yeah. I think he did feel bad after he did it. um, But I still think he was only concerned with himself. Yeah. But that's like most serial killers. They say they know what they're doing is wrong, but they don't care. And I think he knew what he was doing was wrong and he didn't care. He was going to keep doing it. But he had this weird like tick where he thought if he confessed to it after he did it, it would like abolish him of that. Yeah. Like so he could just keep doing it. Yeah. I still think he knew what he was doing was wrong and it was just a really impulse thing that. Yeah. I do. I I know. I'm probably off on it and I don't know enough about the psychology of it. Well, I'm sure we're both off on it. <laughs> Neither one of us know anything about psychology. Right. So, but I, I, don't I know. just, my bullshit meter goes up when I listen to those. Yeah. And it's easy to say voicemails. that. Like, it's easy to hear that yeah. for sure. I, I hear it yeah. too. But when I listen to it and kind of analyze a little bit more, that's when I kind of think, okay, maybe there's actually something to what he's, you know, confessing to. Yeah. So. Well, the other thing is too, when you hear his real voice, like in an interview or on the tapes or anything, when he's not doing, when he's not crying per se. His real voice is not that deep. Like, his real voice is very nasally. and It you know. is. 100%. That's why I think that it's him. Like that, Or not that it's him. That's why I think that he actually is crying, and I think he just doesn't cry right. like a normal cry would be. Yeah, because his voice in general isn't that normal. It's yeah. very high-pitched and sounds kind of like he's plugging his nose anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I got Oh, that. yeah. I heard it. Yeah, I know. All right, we better get going before we offend all the Minnesota people with my horrible, <laughs> horrible impression of a Minnesota accent. Hey, you got family there, so you got a little leeway. I was going to say, I should be way better at it than I am, but I'm not. Oh, yeah, don't you know? <clears throat> I don't know. I can't do it either. I've never been there. Maybe one day. Yeah. 
Yeah, we'll have to go there and get a pop. Oh, a soda pop from Target Field where the twins play. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we're going to get going. Please, 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 please don't forget to change your Amazon smile to DNA Dough Project. It's a very worthwhile cause, guys. Come on. What else are you doing? Yep. Make Bezos spend a little bit more of that money elsewhere. Yeah. All right, buddy. Well, I love you. I love you, too. I'll call you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.